Thank you, everybody. Please take your seats and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Gospels. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylader had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is as he forgives sins? Said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It's a remarkable story. At the center of it is the irresistible Christ. There is something so compelling that even his enemies can't stop speaking about him. Those who will maybe are unwilling to yield to him nevertheless acknowledge him. And sometimes even religions which are non-Christian or maybe even anti-Christian still have a place for Jesus. Sometimes that's to dilute his message, but at least it says this, you can love him, you can hate him, but you cannot get rid of him. Now here we have the story of a woman who had discovered him and his irresistibility. We don't know much about her. We can 
suppose many things and our imagination can fill in some details. But this lady, her life had gone very far away, very, very, very far astray. And yet, as in most instances, her desires, whatever she was deeply longing for, the deepest needs of her heart, and in all humanity there are but a few needs which are fundamental, the deepest things that we look for, security, significance, self-worth, many of those kind of things. And the further we get away from Christ, the more empty we become. And so I suppose that at one time she realized that there was nothing in her life that was bringing her any deep and lasting satisfaction. She had not found even a little bit of what she was looking for going further and further away. And then somehow, maybe even that very day, as Jesus ministered in the marketplace, sharing the message of the kingdom of God with those that were willing to listen, eschewing many ways the proud, the rich, the wealthy, the arrogant, and so on. It was because you're rich doesn't make you proud and arrogant, but we know that so often people in the higher places of society are are a little bit self-sufficient, and they say, I, I don't want any of it. But this woman was open, and something happened in her life. So we pick up the story now at the dinner party. Jesus received an invitation from a Pharisee to come to dinner. Now I've got three main questions tonight. Why did Jesus go? I mean, the Pharisees were the religious bigots, the people that would perhaps were furthest away from the kingdom of God in many, many cases, but Jesus went. Why? I also want to ask the question, why did the Pharisee invite him? What was going on there? And of course, this big question is, which is in some ways the answer is staring us in the face. Why did this woman go even though she was not invited? And that's a big no-no in any situation. She was not invited, and neither would she ever be invited because of the distance between the high, haughty, religious people and the kind of life that she led. Well, I begin to think that Jesus accepted this invitation for a number of reasons that I can discern. He came for everybody, even for those who were highly religious. He came for the theologian. He came for the philosophers. He came to the for the movers and the shakers. He came for people who were great influences in society, but he would not be dictated to by them because his heart was for the common people. So we know that he, he, he was prepared to do it because he has his heart set on everybody. And I, I believe that there is the beginnings here of something that God wants to say to us. We are going to see great stories of intervention in people's lives. Not just the down and out, but the up and out as well. So uh, God wants us to be aware that he is working on people in society. There will be remarkable conversions uh, of prominent people. And, and we will see God's hand upon them. 
So don't give up on anybody. Secondly, Jesus just loved being in people's homes. Why? Because so often there, that's the place where people gathered. The marketplace uh, and the home were the two key places where people would also gather. And there in the homes, every time Jesus came to dinner, something happened. It's almost as if the gospel writer is saying, get ready. You know what's going to happen when Jesus goes home with somebody something happens. Some of Jesus' greatest miracles were done in the marketplace and the other greatest miracles were done in the homes as well as the meeting place. I want you to understand this. Your home can be a place where Jesus operates to reach out to people. One of the reasons we have our cell vision and strategy of cells is that in our homes, when we open up our homes and bring people in, they are often more likely to listen to what has to be said in a home setting, in a familiar setting, rather than in a formal church setting. But don't just leave them in the homes, you bring them to the church services as well. Something always happens when Jesus comes to dinner. I want you to look this year at how you can open your home and invite Jesus to dinner. He will be the unseen guest. He will be there. But don't just have dinner with you and Jesus, all right? Bring other people as well. Bring people into your home. Uh, you know, in, in the cell vision, one of the most effective places for meeting is in the home. Now, I know that not everybody has big houses, big homes, or, or you know, studio flats and everything like that, uh, often the limit. But the little that you have, God will, you, there's something of a way into people's hearts when you open up your home and you share food with them because Jesus will show up. That's how you can share your testimony. That's how you can get to know people. And this move of God that we are seeing, and I believe it's, if it's, if it's, if it's pre-nascent, it's so about to give birth, get ready, get ready. This move of God will be about you taking this message outside of just the meeting place, into the marketplace, and also into the home. That's where the ministry takes place. And the other thing I think is this, is that Jesus hadn't given up yet on Simon. I don't know if Jesus knew him before. I don't know. But he does not give up on anybody. The arrogant, the proud, the scornful. And uh, I, I remember reading and knowing about in the Wesleyan revival, there was an um, aristocratic woman by the name of Lady Huntingdon. And she was a powerful servant of God. And she was used by God to reach many people in the higher echelons of society. And uh, there was a story written about her when she had a dinner party and she began to share the gospel with her rich and wealthy friends, her aristocratic friends. And there was a lady who was so, so, so um, offended at the thought that, uh, that she was a sinner. What? I am not a sinner. I am not. The wretches are in the streets, my dear. And, and, and somehow in this higher level where people are very proud and arrogant, not that everybody's arrogant if they're aristocratic, but in many, many ways, they are used to thinking of other people as being the wretches. We're the wealthy, you're the wretches. Remember the words of John Newton, 
who was a converted slave trader, and, and he came big time through for Jesus, and God used him powerfully. He wrote that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I can imagine that would stick in the throat of every self-respecting person who thought they were a moral cut above the average. But no, Jesus sees the deepest things are going on in our heart, not just the deepest needs as this woman. Her sins were outward. Nobody had to question that. Nobody had to be convinced of that. But they had to see that she had a need that was being met only in Christ. But the others who are wealthy and arrogant and proud, they look okay, morally gleaming white on the outside, but inside they are in desperation. And they know that there is something missing from their lives, and the problem is they find it so difficult to accept it. So those are some reasons, perhaps, why Jesus came to dinner. Then the Pharisee. Why would he invite Jesus to dinner? Was it out of mild curiosity? Maybe it even was fascinated by this. What's happening here? Maybe he felt he had a duty to his fellow Pharisees. Maybe he was acting as some kind of agent to report back to Pharisaical headquarters. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, We know that you must be a man from God because nobody could do the miracles that you do unless God was with him. When he said, We know, he was speaking on behalf of the sect of the Pharisees. And there is certainly a collective thinking taking place here. Because the Pharisees were a tight-knit sect, one of the most influential sects of that day. That was maybe one of the most dominant denominations of the time. And denominational leaders always have, and denominational people always have a vested interest in making sure that their denominational sanctity is kept pure. That nobody else can break in. Nobody else. We are the keepers of the truth. Nobody else can do this. And, and maybe they were, he was thinking, I'm going to find out a little about this. And we're gonna, I'm going to make sure that if there's anything amiss here, I'll let headquarters know. And they will deal with this Jesus. They had deeply entrenched views. Their history was in many ways good. They go right back, the beginning of the sect of the Pharisees goes right back to the time before Christ when the uh, Hellenistic um, uh, um, influences, worldly influences are breaking into Judaism and people said, we've got to return to the true pure faith of our fathers. It's amazing how something that can begin so good can end up so bad. And they said, no, it's all about holiness. We're going to stop uh, our people from following the ways of the world. We're going to stop the influence of the world into our faith. And so they began to set hedges and barriers. And it came out by rules and regulations that would preserve the purity and the sanctity of their faith. A good beginning. But somehow, when people start building rules and regulations, somehow those rules and regulations which were not given by God become man-made religion. Also, they believed they had an inside track. They believed they carried the true truth. 
They believed when they read Moses that they knew exactly what Moses intended. And there was this idea that alongside the written words and the spoken words of Moses were the private revelations of Moses. And so this was called the oral tradition. And the oral tradition began to take over from the written word of God. And before you know it, before you know it God's word is emptied of power by their traditions. But know this, they consider themselves to not just to be right, but very right, and the only people who were right. I believe we're going to see great conversions of people who are highly religious, but highly wrong. God is moving in different world religions today. In Islam, there are thousands of people coming to Christ as Jesus reveals himself sometimes in visions and dreams and manifestations which nobody can deny. And God is breaking into the highly religious, the highly resistant, those people who believe they have the truth, but they are believing a lie. Amen and amen. So I'm not rubbishing or criticizing anybody because I'm talking about even those who pursue the so-called Christian religion but leave Jesus out of it. In fact, religion isn't, doesn't help at all. It's a hindrance. We need Christ. We need a relationship with Jesus. We need intimacy with Jesus. We need to be drawn to the irresistible Christ. Not all the trappings of religion. But having said all of that, the Pharisee did invite Jesus to dinner. And that tells me something. Maybe he was prepared to listen. Maybe it's an indication that he was finding something that he needed for his life and said, okay, Jesus can come to dinner. And of course, the third person here is the woman. <laughs> you know, why would she gate crash a Pharisee's dinner party knowing what kind of reaction she would get. Wow, that's, that's absolutely amazing. You know there are people who would never dream of walking through those doors. Why? Because they think that we are self-righteous, religious, judgmental bigots. I know, I've heard that many times. Have you, have you come across that? They believe we have judged them already. Maybe this woman had some reason to, to believe that. I, I can imagine her as she was moving out in the, in, the, in the public place. Everybody knew why she was there, what she was up to. And I can imagine the Pharisees walking past with their phylacteries, with their spiritual noses in the air. And looking down at this woman. Don't ever look down on anybody. Many of the people that I'm, I'm seeking to reach and befriend. And they discover what I do. I don't lead it and say, hello, my name is Reverend Colin Dye. And I'm here to rescue you with my reverential status. I'm Colin. They get to know me. When they, when they find out that you know, I, I'm a pastor or, 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 or especially the, the level at which you know, we're involved, they've never heard anything like it. And you know, when they start to warm up and, and kind of 
open up to me. So many of them said, you never look down on us. No. I can't look down on them because I'm looking up to Jesus. And this woman said, you can look down on me, but my eyes are on him. So what do I care? I mean, that's beautiful. Why did she come? She came for Jesus, that's why. And uh, she was prepared to ignore the social barrier because the sin barrier was already broken. That was already removed. The sin barrier, that which prevents me from coming to Christ is broken. He's forgiven me. And so nobody else is going to stop me. I'm not going to let your social barriers or any barrier you put up in front of me stop me because the greatest barrier of all is broken, the sin barrier, already removed. I think she was filled with overwhelming gratitude. I keep coming back, I think, in almost every message, coming back to this point. The only response to grace is gratitude. That's all God asks for, gratitude. He just wants us to understand that grace is pure grace, and this woman was made perfectly acceptable to God. He didn't overlook her sins, but he removed them. He dealt with them by his love, compassion, and ultimately by the price he'd pay on the cross. So she was filled with overwhelming grace and therefore also overwhelming gratitude. And when she was deeply grateful, all she could do was express that gratitude. And she wanted to say thank you. She wanted to express her gratitude. She wanted to express her devotion. And she could not wait to get close to Jesus again. He's still in town. What? The rabbi is still here? Yes, I thought he left town. No, he hasn't left town. He's still in town. Where is he? He's having dinner. Where? Which restaurant? No, no, he's at the Pharisee's house. And she said, I'm going to. Her friend said, you are crazy. But she had something in her heart. Something in her heart. Something, something she wanted to do. It, it was not a done deal yet. It was not, it was not complete yet. She, she knew Jesus loved her. She knew uh, she started a new life, but she had not come back yet to worship him and to thank him and to acknowledge him and to say, Jesus, I still want to be close to you. That's a great miracle. A great miracle. There's something else I'm th- I think is working here. Appearing in public like this, in a place where she knew she would ordinarily be, act- be rejected, she was saying, he accepts me, who are you to reject me? Come on, people. There's a good lesson there. God has accepted you, who are they to reject you? They cannot reject, and get away with it, those whom God has accepted. And this acknowledgement of her public acceptance by Christ was, I believe, not just for her own personal vindication. 
It was out of the humility of her life where she was prepared to show her repentance openly. This was an act of repentance. Not just an act of faith, an act of love. It was all of that. It was an act of repentance. How wonderful that she was prepared to make herself public and her attachment to Jesus, her faith in Christ, public. And in her way, she was allowing her repentance to be as public and as notorious as her original offense. We're going to see people like that. We're going to see people come to the altar of God in this house, in your homes, in the business places. We're going to see people who, who, who are so remarkably and miraculously transformed and they will come and testify to the goodness of God and the grace of God. And they will say, like John Newton said, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And yes, I was a wretch, but I am no more a wretch, baby. I live with Christ and he has accepted me. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This is salvation. Salvation. I said earlier today, and I'm, I think I'm going to continue to reflect on this, but I, I'm of the mind right now that this move of God, we should hesitate and refrain from calling it revival until something happens, which in the terminology, the way I'm using this word now, revival, is going to be, to me, the most significant thing. Revival is where the church is revived. Yes, uh, that's true. And, and, but renewal amounts to almost the same kind of thing and refreshing and so on. But the real hallmark of an outpouring of God's Spirit is not just how many people come and are blessed with more of God how many people are touched and healed and restored on the inside, vitally important as that is. The real hallmark is when God begins to pour out his spirit on those outside the churches. And it can happen, and it does happen, and it has happened even in British history. In the great Hebridean revival, it was almost geographic. People were hearing on the mainland of what God was doing in the Hebrides, on the islands. A man by the name of Duncan Campbell went and had, had some, I don't know what they called it, revival meetings, but certainly some evangelistic type Christian meetings and things began to happen and there was a shift in the atmosphere and, and he was about to go home and they said, don't go home, something is happening. Stay, 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 stay. One of the hallmarks from our side of, of it, anyway, one of the authentic marks that we are hungry for God is that we keep on seeking him and we keep on seeking him and we don't let go until we find him. We have to learn how to press in and keep on seeking him, hungering and thirsting for him. And they were hungry anyway. He stayed and something happened. 
the history books tell us on a, of a remarkable evening when there were some people praying in the church and something happened, something shifted in the spiritual atmosphere and people came out of their home saying, what's happened? People were, people were affected. They're, we don't know what it is. Something's happening. People were falling down in the fields. They gathered down to the police station. What are we going to do? And they all came to the church building and saying, what is happening? Something is happening. We're hungry for God. We want to see God. We want to know God. A barrier has been removed. There is an open heaven in this place. I don't think they use that terminology, but they knew that God was pouring out his spirit directly upon the lost, and they were coming under the conviction of sin, coming under the conviction of righteousness, coming under the conviction of the reality reality of God and years and years and years of fruitless evangelism suddenly bore fruit in a matter of weeks as people said God is real. God broke in to the community and that's what I'm looking for. I will accept everything but that's what I'm looking for and so I believe characteristically it's like as, as people like this woman who are touched by God and they are prepared to go all the way. Let nobody put them off. Overcome every barrier, every obstacle, social barriers, every barrier, critical barriers. People who criticize them. The, and there's no greater barrier than the judgmentalism of harsh religion. She walked into that room. Can you imagine the reaction? What is she doing here? Can you look at the hatred in the eyes of the people glaring at how dare you disgusting foul wretch of a woman disturb our dinner party you were not invited and by the way don't wait in the post because you would never be invited but she made straight for Jesus and you, you read it here what she did they're reclining at a table so she's behind Jesus and her tears are falling on his feet. Now, it's a little bit hard to imagine if you think about sitting upright at a table with a knife and a fork. But if you think about the Middle Eastern setting with the table spread in, in the middle of the room, and people recline at the table, not sitting in a high chair. And so this woman comes behind Jesus and kneels at his feet. And she is so moved, the tears fall on the feet of Jesus. She's kissing his feet, and his feet are wet. And now, imagine the shock, horror. Imagine if that happened in Kensington Temple. You would say, What has got into the mind of the pastor? And then even worse than that, even worse than that, not only just washing his feet, but kissing his feet. Even worse than that, she sees his feet are so wet, so she lets down her hair. Do you know how provocative that is? Do you know no decent married woman would ever let her hair down in public. That's behind some of the teaching of the Apostle Paul about women 
required of women to have their heads covered in a meeting. It's nothing to do with wearing a veil as such. It was that they were saying, we're free in Jesus, and we don't have to wear the sign in our hair that we are respectable married women. We are respectable, we're married, and we let our hair down as well. Anyway, that's another issue. Do that for another time. So there's only one kind of a woman, adult woman, who'd walk around with their hair flowing freely. It was a provocative woman. Only immoral women would do that. So, so maybe, maybe they were saying, there we go, we told you. Yep, 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 we're right all along. This is nothing but an immoral woman. How disgusting. But she used her hair not as a means of unholy provocation but a means of devotion and worship. And then she did the very thing for which she had come to do. She broke open this jar of ointment. It was undoubtedly the most precious thing to her and she was yielding it to Christ as an act of devotion, an act of worship, a sign of intimacy, pure, holy intimacy, and in all likelihood, this ointment was the fruit and the product purchased with the product of her profession. Hmm. How wonderful of Jesus to accept it. And in that moment, her repentance is complete. Jesus, I'm giving you everything that I have. And you know how I got this stuff. But I am giving it all to you. I I'm repenting and I'm going to live a whole new life. Wow, so beautiful. And of course the criticism comes, I'll speed the story up here because I wanted to focus on those things. If this man was a prophet, he would know who this woman is and what kind of woman she is, as touching him. And Jesus knew what Simon was thinking, told the story, two people with a debt, and the one who was forgiven the most, loved the most. 
draws the parallel, he joins up the dots, says, Simon, you, you brought me here, but you've not treated me with honor. You've not washed my feet, and she's washed my feet with her tears. You've not anointed my head. All of this stuff is just common courtesy and way of welcome. That was their welcome ministry. Don't worry, we're not going to wash your feet back there, and we're not going to anoint your head, but we're going to respect you and honor you. And then he said to Simon, but he, he looked at Simon while he was speaking to the woman, and said, sorry, he, 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 was, speak, he was looking at the woman and speaking to Simon. And he said, look at this woman. And can you imagine, when he is correcting the Pharisees, looking at the woman. Well, I'll tell you something else. Not only is this woman publicly repentant, not only is this woman bringing forth fruits which are in keeping with, in keeping with repentance, but now she is being healed on the inside. I cannot think of a greater inner healing story in the New Testament. The affirmation, Jesus is confronting Simon, but he's doing it for her sake. This woman, she's done all of this. This woman, her sins are forgiven, you see. That's why she loves so much. He whose sins are forgiven, the one whose sins are forgiven, loves much. And the love flows after the forgiveness. In other words, it's the gratitude. And when that, when that exchange took place, even though everybody was outraged, who does he think he is to forgive sins? Oh, that's the religious stuff. But Jesus had done his work. His mission for the night was over. The ministry took place in the home. Jesus ministered to the deepest needs of her heart as she poured out her devotion to him. Many great things are going to happen. But we have to get this. It's all about him. He is the irresistible one. He is the reason. And as we pour out our worship to him, he pours his healing into our hearts. 